This is the Hockey News Fantasy Podcast of Matt Larkin. Hello, everybody. We are live. It's Matt Larkin here for the Hockey News Fantasy Hockey Podcast. I am joined lurking in the shadows by producer Stephen Ellis. We have so much to talk about this week because it's the trade deadline fallout, which always affects fantasy rosters. People want to know, did my guys, did their value go up as a result of the trade? Did it go down? Did it indirectly get influenced by a player coming in or coming out of the lineup? And that's where we're going to start today, okay? So I'm going to address a few different players who I think gained or lost value at the trade deadline. If I don't mention one of the big names, it's because I'm saving him. He's going to be involved in a question later. So we're going to start with Anthony Mantha, part of that big blockbuster. And I said on our, our regular podcast, you know, to me, Anthony Mantha and Jacob Verhana, I think they both are guys who are going to gain value in their new homes. And we saw already Anthony Mantha with Nicholas Backstrom and TJ Oshie already playing on line two, already producing six shots, goal and assist in his first game. And it's not just that he's on a better team. He's going to have more insulation because he's not on the Ovechkin line right now. He's going to get maybe some power play looks. So I think that's a very obvious gainer right there. Another one, this is example, an example of indirect gainer. It's Jack Campbell of the Toronto Maple Leafs. The move that, that Kyle Dubas makes is to bring in David Reddick. And the message that is sent there is that there's no real competition for the number one job coming into Toronto. It is now Jack Campbell's. So you can make a case he might be, it's crazy to say this, but a top 10 fantasy goalie the rest of the way. He is now entrenched as Toronto's starter. Next up in the risers category, we have Mike Riley of the Boston Bruins, someone who had a little bit of buzz when he was coming out of college, but didn't, didn't quite click his first few seasons in, in the NHL. You know, he, he was a hab, he was a Minnesota Wild member, Ottawa Senators, and this year with the Senators, he gets a bigger opportunity, he starts to put up points, his puck moving ability comes into play, and He's even, if you're in a deeper league, he's even contributing kind of those goodies, shots and hits and blocks, a little bit of that as well. Now he gets traded to a better situation in Boston. And you might think, well, he's going to a better team now. They're not going to need him as much as Ottawa did. I don't know if that's true because we know the left side of Boston's blue line is decimated after losing Tory Krug to Dano Char last year. So there's an opportunity for Mike Riley to climb that death stride. He played 22-plus minutes, I believe, in his first game. And now the only knock on Riley was, you know, if you're playing on the Ottawa Senators in fantasy, it's always risky if you have plus-minus as a category. Well, now he's a Boston Bruins, so plus minus will no longer be a problem. That's another riser. One more riser for you I have is Brandon Montour. Actually, I got two more risers. One is Brandon Montour of the Florida Panthers. The Panthers losing Aaron Ekblad. They need a right shot defenseman who can be mobile. There's not a lot of competition for Montour, in my opinion. Got to keep the handle on, on the left side, but in terms of that puck moving role, I think Montour has an opportunity for a pretty big role on a talented team. Maybe he gets power play looks. When he first came into the league, he was a pretty good offensive prospect with the Anaheim Ducks, but now he's got that sort of Buffalo odor that was stuck to him. So look for him to start playing a lot better and getting more opportunities as a Florida Panther. One more riser, and I'm kind of surprising myself with this pick, but I'm going to say it. Jeff Carter of the Pittsburgh Penguins. To me, it's a situation where you know we know that he's still – a pretty prolific shot generator. He's got, I think it was 111 shots or something this year. He's got positional versatility. So I'm kind of curious if you're in a really deep league just to see how Pittsburgh deploys him. He might get a pretty decent opportunity. I think it's Jared McCann and Jason Zucker he's going to get a look with early on and maybe some power play time. And the Penguins' schedule rest of season is pretty easy at getting Malkin still out of the lineup. So maybe you get a little boost from Jeff Carter. That's one more riser for you. Now, a couple of guys, a handful of guys who I think lost value as a result of trades. 
Uh, one I think is Matias Yanmark going to the Vegas Golden Knights. It's a good pickup for the Golden Knights. They need depth. But on that depth chart, he's not going to pass. If, if, assuming he's going to stay on the left side, he's not passing Max Petretti or John, or Jonathan Marcheseau. So it's more of a really good team bringing in someone as a luxury, whereas the Blackhawks needed him more. So I don't think he's going to be fantasy relevant as a Vegas Golden Knight. Another one, assuming they're healthy, you know, we know Anthony Duclair, he's been banged up. But in Florida, with Sam Bennett coming in, Nikita Gusev, both of their natural positions are left wing. Maybe with Carter Verhegg being hurt, it changes. But overall, if you're Duclair, Frank Vitrano, Mason Marchman, all those guys have gotten opportunities in the top six. There's just a lot more bodies there competing for that ice time now. So I'm not sure if any of those guys, they might cancel each other out. They might cannibalize each other's fantasy value. So I'm not all that interested in Florida Panthers left wingers right now who are not named Jonathan Uberto. Uh, speaking of the left wing, you look at the Boston Bruins, Jake DeBrusque, Nick Ritchie, both guys. The Bruins have had that revolving door all season long trying to find the fit on the second line. They're so top heavy. And DeBrusque and Ritchie have gotten their chances, but now it's Taylor Hall. And, you know, you could think, well, maybe Hall's going to struggle. He's going to fall down the depth chart. I don't think so. You're bringing in Taylor Hall for, for a specific reason. You're not using him as a <laughs> part of a shutdown line. He's there to score. So he's going to be playing probably with David Krejci and Craig Smith for a little while, and maybe, who knows, maybe Bruce Cassidy experiments and you give him a chance on the first line. You move Brad Marchand down, you try to diversify your attack. I'm not sure, but no matter what happens, I think it hurts the value of left-wingers DeBrusque and Nick Ritchie. And so those are the, the risers and fallers. I still want to talk, you know, traditionally, as I always do, about the pickups in various league sizes. So we're going to start with shallow leagues. The first one. Jason Robertson of the Dallas Stars, brother of Nick Robertson. He's available in 41% of leagues. And he is entrenched right now as the Dallas Stars' number one left winger past 24 games. He's got 23 points. A lot of talk about Kirill Kaprizov having an amazing rookie season. Robertson is right there. I think he's probably going to be a Calder finalist as well. Right now, he's not getting a ton of points on the power play. So you're getting more even strength, which if your league counts plus minus, that's a plus every time he's in on a goal. So that's the... The trade-off, you're not getting as many power play points, but you are getting plus minus. That's the shallow league pickup. In medium leagues, we have Jesper Brat, and this is a guy who gets an opportunity because the Devils, they're just shipping bodies out on the wings. No more, and also at center, no more Travis Dajak, no more Kyle Palmieri, Nikita Gusev. Just that depth chart in general at forward is, is quite depleted now, so there isn't nearly as much competition for playing time for Jesper Brat. He's really entrenched in the top six now, getting power play one time. He's got 19 points in his past 22 games, and you're not going to get a lot of goals from Brad, but he's got 15 assists over those 22 games. So he's a nice source of assists if you're hurting in the assist category. Let's do a deep league pickup. And this one is really surprising to me. I was too slow. I was waiting a day to grab him. I missed him. Someone else got him in my league. Michael Bunting of the Arizona Coyotes. I'm used to seeing his name because every time, you know, he was one of those guys who gets called up and down over and over. You're getting press releases from the Coyotes over the past few years, but it kind of tells you he was a quad A player. He was always producing in the AHL level, but never quite entrenching himself at the NHL level. 25 years old. He was drafted seven years ago, but here he is. And here's the thing. He does pass the test of did he score at every level? He scored in major junior. He scored in the AHL. He was better than a point per game, I believe, in the AHL this year. And here we go in the NHL, six goals in seven games, three on the power play. I don't know if he's going to sustain this. He's shooting it better than 33%. But, you know, you look at the fact he's available in 95% of leagues. So you can get him in deep leagues, and it's hard to find someone with that big of an opportunity. He's getting a look on the first line. He's on the power play. He's hot right now. So, you're probably in crunch time. Some leagues are in their playoffs. Some leagues are in the last week of the regular season. Just give them a shot because there's lightning in a bottle at the moment. 
the last pickup category is the WTF category. It's UC Saros of the Nashville Predators. I dropped him in my league because he was hurt, and I didn't have any any IR space left, and it's hurting me. Maybe it's going to cost me my season. I'm not sure. He's available in 23% of leagues. What are these leagues that don't have him rostered in his last 12 games? 10-2, 958. Save percentage. He has been the key to the Predators' resurgence. And if you're a, a, a pool aficionado, you've heard the term league winner. And to me, Saros is a possible league winner. If you picked him up as your number two goalie or if you're in a deeper league where you can have three goalies, He's been such a difference maker. He could put you over the top, win you a championship, and if he's available in your shallow league, go get him right now. Okay. Now let's do our tip of the week. And I just wrote, no more patience. And what I mean by that is there are certain times of year, you know, especially early in the regular season when you have to avoid overreacting, especially leading up to the trade deadline. The example was always Taylor Hall. I got a lot of questions about that. Oh, do I hold on? Do I wait to see where he gets traded? And I usually would say, yes, you do. That, that window has now passed. The trade deadline is over, so you know where everybody's landed. And I think it's time that you completely switch your strategy. It's time to be ruthless. If you have a guy, let's say the example I wrote down was Pierre-Luc Dubois, someone who should be producing better than he is, but he isn't, be ruthless. Drop him. If you're in a, a fairly shallow league, pick up that hot player. Instead, pick up, you know, if you can drop Pierre-Luc Dubois, who's a name brand, and pick up Jason Robertson, do it. Because this is the time of year where you can't afford those mistakes anymore. You can no longer afford to be patient. Every little move you make could be the difference between making the playoffs, missing the playoffs. If you're in a rotisserie league, it could be getting those extra points that help you win. So it's time to have a quick hook and switch that strategy. Alrighty, next up. I'm going to take a giant sip of water because I've been talking for a while. And Stephen Ellis has the floor because we're going to get some questions coming in. we got a lot of good ones this week. Yeah, so first off, uh, I had a really fun moment in my hockey pool where the guy, there's an inactive GM who is now – beat the top two teams in the league back-to-back weeks. Uh, and I played, and I beat him, but I literally beat him on the final day. And the reason why is he's got Dreisaitl. Dreisaitl is just, each week, is just doing what he does. So he will, like, we'll, we'll enter the weekend looking all good, and then he comes in and he just knocks us out. So I'm the only one who hasn't, of the top three teams, I'm the only one who hasn't been knocked out from him yet. But uh, that uh, was a bit of a scary experience. So, uh don't underestimate your inactive GMs if they've uh, actually kind of set the lineup right. But their goalies right now are Carey Price and Tuka Rask. So they're not getting a lot of starts out of his goalies, which is probably why he lost. But anyways, our first question for today comes from Ryan, who asks, head-to-head keeper league, goal assists, penalty minutes, power play goals, power play assists, hit, block. I need to drop a right wing for next year. I was given a trade offer for Konechny for my third round pick. I currently have Rock Besser. Who is better, K or B? Cheers. Alrighty, well, we know you can't really, it's keeper league, you can't really use age as a tiebreaker. They're both from the same draft class, that amazing 2015 draft class. I would take the trade. I would trade Travis Konechny. I would keep Brock Besser. If you look so far in their careers, Besser is the more prolific goal scorer. He's more consistently entrenched on the top line or scoring lines, getting big power play minutes. He's played 100 as of last night. I wrote down the stat last night because this question came in yesterday. Uh, Brock Besser has played 100 fewer games than Travis Konechny, and he has one fewer goal. So that's a pretty stark discrepancy. I know Konechny started to bloom a little bit later. He's been better in the last couple seasons. Well, that's the problem, not including this season, because he does not seem to have L.A. Vigneault's trust in Philly. He's been a healthy scratch at times. His role is just it's not as sturdy as it was pre-Vigneault or even last year. And, you know, you could if you want. If you, if you have a late deadline to declare keepers, you could wait and see how things play out in Philly. And, you know, it's been a pretty disastrous season. So maybe... 
Alan Mignot gets fired and you have a new coach coming in who might trust Konechny more, but I don't think you can wait and bet on that. I think Brock Besser, even when the Canucks have had a really nightmare season for so many different reasons, he's still been quite fantasy relevant and he's a really good source of goals. So to me, it's close, uh, especially considering, you know, Konechny really broke out the last couple of seasons before this one, both talented players. And in the long haul, I still think Konechny is going to be fine. But to me, Besser, he's got a higher floor and higher ceiling in my opinion. All right. Next question comes from Ayush Das, who asks, probably not what you're looking for, but it's come quite a bit recently in my circles. How do you define collusion trades that can be vetoed? I actually was involved in that a couple of days ago in someone else's pool where uh, a couple of the players they were trading away were guys who were getting really hot right now, but they were not the best players in the trade if we're looking at a whole season thing. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and shout out to Ayush. Really good intern of ours back in the day. It's been several years now, but he was really good. So how's it going, Ayush? Um, so to me, when it comes to collusion and vetoing, I think you have to be really careful. I'm not a big fan of vetoing because it sets precedent. If you veto one trade, then that GM becomes the one who got vetoed becomes vindictive. He's going to try to jump in and veto every other trade after that. And you get this game of threatening and all this stuff. It's, it's terrible. I do think there are exceptions. So I think there are tiers. The first tier would be the really obvious, you know, DNA evidence where you know a favor was exchanged you know, there's one league i played in uh, where somebody played paid ten dollars it was like oh it was it was jonas hoagland and ten dollars for owen nolan was the trade i think i mentioned that on this podcast before so that's pretty obvious collusion the word got out that trade has to be vetoed because it was a crooked trade even just little things you know if there's evidence of hey you know i really want to beat this guy it'll be funny so can you trade me? you're out of the playoffs why don't you just trade me this player because it'll be funny if i load up to beat so-and-so because you know he's my rival it'll be hilarious that's the kind of kind of collusion you don't want as well or sort of the quid pro quo pro quo you know oh if you, if you help me out i'm contending help me out with this trade next year i'll remember this i'll get you back that's another trade that should be beat up that to me is the, is the obvious tier the next tier down would be you get a trade everybody in the league is up in arms you have as always the person who won the trade being like oh no it was a great trade here's why it's easy to get them to defend the deal because they're trying to smooth things over they don't want to damage the relationship with the gm they just fleeced so that's understandable but if you're looking at when do you veto that kind of trade if the other gm is not stepping in to defend the deal at all is not it is is awol is not posting on the message board however you communicate in your league if there's no effort to say this is why i made the trade this is why it's good for my team that's sketchy as well so that's one maybe you could consider vetoing but other than that no matter how bad the trade is if the gm who got fleeced comes into into the discussion and says I like this trade for my team. This is why I did it. This is what I'm hoping is going to happen. You have to let that trade stand because you live and learn and everybody's got to have the freedom. You know, I, in most leagues, you're adults. You have to be able to make your own roster moves, whether they're smart or not. And especially, I always say this because I'm considered a controversial GM in my league. Everybody remembers how they feel the day a trade happened. Nobody goes back and looks and sees who actually won the deal. It happens all the time. A trade happens. People go crazy. Oh, my God, I can't believe we traded so-and-so. This trade is awful. And then months later, that the team that supposedly fleeced someone, that team loses the trade. I made a trade like that earlier this year, and I wrote it down. People went nuts. It was I, – I traded uh, – I, tr I acquired Blake Wheeler – I acquired Zach Rensky, Robin Lehner. I traded I traded UC Saros away, and I traded Dylan Strome and Kyler Yamamoto. People went nuts over that trade. Really, in the end, everybody lost that trade other than UC Saros. Every other piece of that trade's a bust. So that's an example. I bet you no one in my league remembers that. All they remember is that it was a terrible trade. People wanted it reversed. But we didn't reverse it because the guy that made the trade with me, 
He was happy with it. He defended it. And in the end, the trade ended up being quite even actually a slight win for that GM. So please be careful. I think at all, if at all, try to do everything you can to not veto a trade. Consider vetoing a last resort. I was in a league though once where the in the draft the first and second overall uh, the the teams who picked first and second overall were boyfriend and girlfriend, but the girlfriend we were questioning why she was playing because she didn't like hockey one bit. Well, it turned out no one was really paying attention enough, but she was just trading the all her good players away to the boyfriend, and it's like the boyfriend had like Crosby, Malkin, and, and all those guys, and she had like nothing left because she traded all the good players away. It's like ah okay, so. Interesting situation there. Ben Gravel asks, does Vrana have a chance to explode in Detroit? What's happening with Darlene and Heiskanen? He was so dominant in the last playoffs. I guess he means Heiskanen in that case. All right. So before I answer that question, can you, Stephen, can you hear music in the background right now? I do not. Okay, it's my daughter is, is blaring some music upstairs. I'm in my I'm in a villain lair at my my in laws' house. You know, crazy times, school closures. Yeah, but where's your like uh, evil cat time. or something? Uh, you can't hear like, it. It is. All right. You should have like an evil cat that you're like petting or something. Yeah, I know. I need that. That's right. Um, okay. So three-part question here. Will Jacob Vrana explode in Detroit? I think yes. Uh, I think, you know, yes, there are questions about his two-way commitment, but this is a fantasy hockey podcast. We're not talking about his all-around real-life game right now. What we're talking about is are his offensive numbers going to explode with the Detroit Red Wings? I think they will. This is someone who obviously he's had really good line mates in Washington. It, it bears consideration, but he did so much with so little. I, I was writing down some numbers in the last three seasons with uh, looking at five-on-five five goals per 60 minutes. The only players that have more goals per 60 than Jacob Vrana, Austin Matthews, Alex Ovechkin, Brendan Gallagher, Dominic Kubalik, and David Pasternak. So this is someone who yet in forwards in, in over that same time span, 257th in average ice time. So getting very small opportunities to produce and still producing. So to me, even though he's going to have a, a, a temporary, at least downgrade in line mates, I think the fact he's done so much with so little offsets that. And I am expecting the move to be very good for his career. Just like I said, it's going to be good for Mantha too. I think both sides are going to be happy with that trade. Uh, as for Rasmus Dahlin, He's in, obviously, like every Buffalo Sabre, an impossible situation this year. It's so hard to evaluate every Sabre because so much has gone wrong, and, and emotionally it's probably taken a toll on the team. But the one thing I can say with Rasmus Dahlin, he is younger than 97.6% of the defensemen in the National Hockey League this year. There are only six defensemen younger than him that have played a game. That's how young Rasmus Dahlin still is. He's such a phenom that he joined the league so young that it feels like he might be older than he is, but he's got so much time. And you look historically, I've, I've used this example so many times, but it goes all the way back to you know Chris Pronger and Jovanovski, more recently Victor Hedman, and this year, last year, Aaron Ekblad, these big, high-end, mega-prospect defensemen. Sometimes it just takes a while for everything to come together for the offense, the all-around game to catch up. I'm not worried about Rasmus Dahlin. It's, it's obviously a tough situation to be in, but he's just so young. Even two years from now, we could say he's still young. Like The breakout for these big, strong, all-around defensemen, usually it's like age 23, 24. That's when it happened for Hedman. That's when it happened for Ekblad. So if Dahlin gets to 23 years old and, and the light hasn't come on, then fine. We can ask that question again, but I would not worry about him right now. As for Miro Heiskanen's production, it's tough. It's the blessing and curse. He's just so good. He's such an all-around great player that sometimes I think he just is asked to do so much that it's going to limit his offensive ceiling. Like he doesn't have to score 70 points to be great. 
He can be a 50-point guy who wins a Norris Trophy or wins multiple Norris Trophies. In the playoffs, I don't know. Maybe it's just the flow of the game they need. You know, If you look at the competition Dallas had to take down to get all the way to the Stanley Cup, the teams they had to beat, they often were the underdog, and Heiskanen just, I think, took the team on his back. So maybe he's just going to be one of those players who steps up his game in the playoffs. But I think the bigger sample size is regular season. To me, he's going to be just, you know, kind of like what Drew Doughty was in his prime. When he was, you know, he won a Norris Trophy, he was considered at his peak. I know not now in the analytics community, but I'm talking about, you know, five years ago, whenever it was. He was one of, if not the best defenseman in, in the game. But his his overall fantasy numbers never quite matched his output in the playoffs and just his overall reputation. So maybe Heisken is going to carve out a similar career where he's just great, but he just, because he's done, he, he just has so much responsibility. He doesn't have to think about scoring every second. All right. Our next question comes from Danny Jans. I don't believe he's the blue Jays uh, catcher who's playing right now. Uh, I believe he is playing right now because the blue Jays are playing, but he asked, do you see Taylor Hall's fantasy value blasting up due to the trade to Boston? He did not look great in his first game. Yeah, it's funny, uh, Danny Jansen, I thought the same thing, Blue Jays catcher. It's Alejandro Kirk is playing today, and he hit a homer. I was almost late for the show because Alejandro Kirk hit a homer, and I was watching it, and I was excited because I'm a Blue Jays fan. And I looked, I was like, oh, my God, the podcast is going to start. I was all pumped up about Alejandro Kirk. Um, well, I was going to say about Jansen. Jansen, I was looking him up. He's only 25 years old, but I could have sworn he was like 32. He looks so much older. He's, he's a year older than me, but you like he looks so much older. Yeah, I think it's the glasses. It distinguishes yeah. him. Uh, so Taylor Hall, do I think it's going to rise? I, I do think it's going to rise. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk and he's been open about it. He's an open book type of player. He always has been. His confidence is pretty rattled, so it could take time. But he's entering a winning culture. And I was looking at the history of his opponents uh, as a Buffalo Sabre this year. And his most common defensemen he's faced are Travis Sanheim, Ivan Provorov, John Carlson, and the best shutdown pair in the NHL, Adam Pellick and Ryan Pulak. So the quality of competition was always turned to the max. The sliders, if you're if you're a gamer, were always maxed out in terms of what Taylor Hall was up against. But if he's on the second line, you cannot key on Taylor Hall. You have to focus on Brad Marchand, Patrice Bergeron, David Pasternak, and they're going to be more insulated matchups for Taylor Hall. So if he can find his confidence, which I think he will, I think Bruce Cassidy is going to be a good fit. I think he's a coach that's very well liked by his players. And to me, he would skew more on the player's coach side. So I think it's going to be a good fit. I think Hall's going to find his footing. I think the pucks are going to start going in for him. He has had a down year. People want to talk about his shooting percentage. Despite the low shooting percentage, it's been a bad year. There's no questioning that. But he doesn't just have as much responsibility. And to me, for, for Taylor Hall's fantasy value to go up, it's not like he has to be elite. He could just be what he was as an Arizona Coyote last year, like, you know, close to a point per game, maybe a little bit less, and that would still be a win if you stuck it out with them or if you traded for him or tried to buy low, whatever you did. So I would say that the value is going to go up. I would still temper your expectations, but I'm confident that he's going to be better. All right, the next question comes from Sebastian Moller. Ask Nikita Gusev, a must-add for the prior to the fantasy playoffs. I wrote an article for the Hockey News right after he got uh, let go from New Jersey. I'm thinking like a team like Florida, I actually picked it them as the team that should get him. He got him. I think he's going to play a solid role for this team, but you also got to be cautious with this guy. We know that he's so hot and cold. He even was at points in the KHL. It's not like this is just a one-time thing in the NHL, except in the KHL, he would have a couple of slow games and then go get four points one game, and that kind of makes up for it. But what are your thoughts there? 
Yeah, I think you described him well. He definitely runs hot cold. The good news is the hot streaks, they do matter. And, you know, he, if you look at his total body, body of work, uh, his first 82 games in the NHL, he had 15 goals and he had 49 points. So in most leagues, a 49-point player is pretty fantasy relevant. Whether he's a must-add for the fantasy playoffs, I wouldn't say must. I think it's someone you give a tryout. If you, if you have a deep roster or deep rosters in your league, you have room for one of your final winger spots, you give him a shot. I think, you know, he's he's being moved around. He can play left wing or right wing. And Carter Verhead getting hurt suddenly changes things because what I was thinking was, well, we don't know for sure that he's better than Anthony Duclair and Frank Vetrano and Sam Bennett. I talked about it earlier. Just That's kind of just a jumbled mess and who knows who's going to win out and, and get the second line job. But with Verhaeg out now, it's like, okay, well, Gusev and as well as Anthony Duclair, those are guys who can move and play a little bit of the right side too. So suddenly everybody moves up a little bit on the depth chart. So you never know what you're hoping because obviously Verhaeg has had that role with Sasha Barkov all year. You never know. Do they try Gusev with Barkov? And suddenly then you got to run to your waiver wire to get him. So I think he's a flyer. I don't think you trip over yourself to get him, but it's someone once he, he's in the lineup, you, you you throw, you give him, I call it a try. You give him a couple games if you can afford it, especially if it's the week before your playoffs. If you're a team that's in first place or, you know, safely in a playoff spot, you can experiment for the last couple of days to see if you can get somebody who goes on a hot streak. But Gusev's a guy, if it's not happening, if he goes a couple games and the points aren't there, they just drop him. Because for him, a, a, a pointless streak of two games could quickly become like nine games. So you have to just understand when to ride the wave and when not to with Gusev. I will always like Gusev because uh, I love what he's able to do internationally, what he's able to do in the KHL. But as Ryan said best, in your mid-20s, if you're coming over to the, the NHL for your first time from the KHL, that's tough. It's a bit of a different thing when you're a prospect like Vasily Podkolzin when he'll eventually make his NHL debut. Um, it might be a little bit of a different situation there. It took way too long for Gusev, but at the same time, Kaprasov's looking pretty good. All right, we got a question from a different Ryan this time who asked, Hyman, Felino, Simmons, who goes where? I guess that means in the lineup. Yes, I clarified. I asked Ryan, uh, this different Ryan on Twitter, what, what he meant. He meant where in the lineup. So um, to me, with the way the Leafs' first line has played recently, you're not going to really mess with Zach Hyman, the chemistry he's had with, with Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner. I think that's a safe bet. Yes, it changes the odd game once in a while, but overall, that's been a pretty consistent trio. Uh, Felino, typically a left winger, Wayne Simmons a right winger. So to me, they're not really in competition for each other for a job. So I think given the price that the Leafs paid, you know, giving up a first-round pick, uh, I think Felino will get a chance to play with John Tavares and William Dillinger because if you're paying that much to just put him immediately in the bottom six, I don't think it makes sense. There's still Ilya Mikheyev who's lurking, who could eventually get that job back. But I think you got to at least try Felino there first once he's done his quarantine. So that's where I would predict he would land. And if it doesn't work out, if it's not he's not producing, then you use him as a pretty pretty great third liner, and that's fine. In terms of fantasy value, I think he's fantasy relevant. If you're in a hits league, for sure, of course, because he's usually a 200 hit per year guy, give or take. And if he's on that second line, you're going to want him and just see how things play out. Absolutely. But I wouldn't, again, it's kind of... Like with Gusev, you don't go crazy. You don't overreact. But I think there's potential there. Again, you have to be in a league with a bench where you can stash him because you got to wait for him to finish his quarantine. It's a crucial time of the year in most most pools, so you have to be careful. You don't want to eat up a crucial roster spot where you you know you need someone who's ready to play right now. It could cost you a playoff spot or a playoff match. So be careful. But uh, I think Felino, you know, medium fantasy potential. He's someone you're just, just going to have to monitor where he is in the lineup. He's not someone you can trust no matter where he's playing in the lineup to produce. 
All right, we actually have a good point here from our own Jared Ostroff from the Hockey News, who, by the way, you'll be checking out a stream that he and I are doing with a special guest tomorrow, a commentator who commentates the Ottawa Senators games on TV, Victor Finley. Uh, so we'll be doing that tomorrow at 3 o'clock on the platform you're watching on right now. But he says, if you break down Taylor Hall's stats by month, you'll notice Hall's best production comes in April with 13 goals and 30 assists in just 41 games. Something to something that's kind of interesting. All right, where are we now for the next question? It is from Melissa Palmer. If you're looking over the next five years, who is a better player to keep, Barkov or Eichel? <laughs> I wrote down like all caps. What a question! I love this question from Melissa Palmer because it's tough. A few months ago, I don't think it would have been a question. You know, based on when people were taking them in their drafts. In my draft, Jack Eichel went like ninth overall or something, and Barkov went in the second round. Um, but things have really changed, of course. Again, it's the Buffalo factor. And I think Alexander Barkov, you know, he had a slight dip last year and people forgot kind of how good he was. But to me, he reminds me a lot of Sergei Fedorov in his prime. Obviously not the skater that Fedorov was, but in terms of the ability to be a guy who could win the MVP someday and the Selkie Trophy, which Fedorov did in the same season. And to me, Barkov's impact is similar. You're seeing just his all-around talent. His hands are unbelievable. I remember talking to Barkov and Barkov told me this cool story a couple years ago that he had this buddy who was just like a beer league goalie that he would dangle on like back in Finland and he'd just humiliate his poor buddy over and over and that's how he learned all his dangles which is pretty fun that's why he's just so so gifted and I think what we're seeing from Barkov is not a fluke this is his this is the real him he's an elite player who could maybe be a borderline first round pick in leagues next year the big question is with Jack Eichel the upside is still there last year's pace was about 94 points, if I'm not mistaken, if I remember correctly. So to me, whether Eichel is the better keeper, it depends on whether he's traded. If he's not traded, I think it's Barkov. If Eichel's traded, I think no matter where he goes, you're going to see a big surge in his value. He's going to come back to, to his regular self. So deciding on which of them to keep, it depends on when your keeper declaration deadline is, assuming you have one. My league has one. You have to do it by certain. I think it's like two weeks after the Stanley Cup final, something like that. So Ideally, you want to wait to see where, where Eichel goes. And if he stays a Sabre, I don't think you want him next year as much as you want Bar Barkov. And the fun part about this question is I drafted Sasha Barkov in my league. I traded for Jack Eichel. And I traded away Jack Eichel, and I kept Sasha Barkov. So this actual scenario played out in my league, and I chose Barkov just last month. So I have an educated answer there. I don't regret it. Um, but if you know that Eichel gets traded to the New York Rangers or something, and it's like, oh my God, Eichel's going to play with Panarin next year, then you got to, but the upside for Eichel then would be 100 points, I think, right? He's still young enough. So just if you can afford to wait, wait. If you can't afford to wait, then go Barkov. All right. Next question comes from Kyle Connor, who asks Hey, my namesake has been good again this year. He hit 73 points a few years ago, but do you foresee him breaking over the mark in the future? Or is he more of a 60 point guy? I just want to say I accidentally dropped Kyle Connor by accident. I meant to drop Cappers off um, just so I can get a goalie for my last day of the week so I could get one more or like a little bit of a, a run there in points because I had no goalies playing that night. Fortunately, not a single person cared to pick up Kyle Connor, so I picked him back today. But it's like I, I what league is this? Are there are there <laughs> four Are you Come on, man. Four, four teams. It's just like it's it's a really competitive four team group, but it's yeah, it dropped literally <laughs> Capers off and no one cared. 
All right. So, uh, so Kyle Connor, let's talk Kyle Connor. Uh, to me, the higher project- projection is the right total. I don't think we're going to see Kyle Connor as you know in a full season as a sixty-point guy until his prime is over. He's better than that. Uh, he used to be part of that 2015 draft class. Again, that draft class is unbelievable. It's going to go down as one of the greatest of all time. Uh, he has tremendous speed. He, and that was always the book on him. Blind. I think, I think uh, it was, we had a scout in our draft preview magazine that year say he had Jersey flapping, <laughs> that kind of speed. Uh, so we know the speed's there. It translates great to this game. He's got a nose for the net. He's a pure goal scorer. So to me, I think we're going to see a season of like 40 goals and 80 points rather than a regression to 60 points. I think next year, if the, if the league plays an 82-game schedule, I would project Kyle Connor for about 40 goals and 80 points. I think he's a top-notch player. I think he's one of the most underrated players in the NHL and fantasy. So I, I'm, I'm quite high on him, and I think he's going to be like, – I think he's going to average you know 35 goals a year for the next four or five years. All righty, our next question comes from Iman Devlin, who asks, what is the most reactionary move you've seen someone make in fantasy as a result of the trade deadline? Yeah, this, this is a tough one. It's hard to remember, but I did I did think of a couple. Um, I just remember, I feel like a lot of people have this memory um, because I live, you know, I, I went to, to university not too far from Toronto, and um, the day that Owen Nolan was traded to the Leafs, like people were going crazy. There was a guy on our floor that hadn't, I feel like he got the jersey that day somehow, and people were just going nuts in the league, you know, not willing to trade him for anything. So that would be an overreaction, I think, to just the pandemonium that the Nolan trade caused. Um, and the one I could remember, uh, and this is one where I was right. So this was the 2009 season, and this was me. I was the overreactor. Um, I picked up Chris Kunitz when I heard that he was traded to the Pittsburgh Penguins. And someone made me an offer and like pretty good offers. And I was like, no, he's going to, he's going to go off. He's a penguin. Now he's going to be a key piece. He already won a cup with the ducks. He's going to become a key cog. And then he ended up getting 18 points in his final 20 games of that season. So I was actually right. I overreacted, but it turned out to be a proper reaction, I guess. So there you go. There you have it. Even Devlin. All right. This question is from Mika Hakla. Which is the better pick for the rest of the season, Connor Brown or Nino Niederreiter? Connor Brown, oh my gosh, is a lot of fun to watch right now. I'll say that. Yeah, Connor Brown has gone bananas. Um, so their season stat lines are quite similar, almost identical, actually, in terms of goals and points and shots on goal, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and obviously, Brown has got some crazy momentum going. But my understanding, and I, I think I have this right, but I was trying to look closer. I don't think that Connor Brown, his actual line assignment is in the top six uh, or on the top power play. So I think he's just getting some kind of miracle run, but he's not actually, it's not like he's playing on a line with Brady Kachuk or anything. He's just kind of hot. So I don't know how sustainable that is. That could be, you know, you trade for Connor Brown or something, and then he doesn't score again for 10 games. Uh, and it, to me, it's telling that, you know, I said their numbers are almost identical. It took an eight-game goal-scoring streak for Brown just to catch up to Nino Ryder's numbers. So to me, Nino, Nino who uh, I think he's a, a safer player, he also delivers more hits than Connor Brown if you're in a league that counts hits. So I, I think, you know, neither guy blows me away as a fantasy option. It's been fun if you had Connor Brown. I'll, you know, I, I tip my cap to you. But for the rest of the season value, I would lean slightly toward Nino Niederreiter. All right. And our final question we're going to do today before the starting lineup, MJ Weber 13 asks, Makar and Backstrom for Gerard and Shifley, who wins the trade? Yeah, that is uh, an extremely even trade. And, and it's kind of one of those trades, like it's so even, it's like, why, what's the point? Like, it's, I feel like you're just going to get the same overall. If you add up the production, it's going to be so similar that, and they're both center center for DD. It's like, why do you even do that trade? 
Um, I, I do lean slightly toward uh, Baxter McCarr. If you look at McCarr and, and Samuel Girard, Girard's had a tremendous season. I think he's actually a fringe Norris Trophy candidate for all the talk that McCarr's gotten. Girard has been unbelievable this season. But for fantasy value, it's telling that, you know, McCarr has played 10 fewer games, I believe, than Girard and has one fewer point. McCarr's ceiling is to, it's the highest ceiling of any player in terms of offense. Maybe Adam Fox is now in that discussion too. But, you know, McCarr, what he's doing is, there's been no defenseman since Brian Leach who's produced this way to start a career. So he's, I'm not saying he's going to be a Hall of Famer, but just where he is in his first two seasons, he's on that type of trajectory. So Gerard has been great, but I don't think he can even approach the ceiling of McCarr. Whereas if you look at Shifley and Backstrom, you know, Shifley in general is the better fantasy option. He's a lot younger too. But this season, you know, they've been pretty even. And Backstrom, he's gotten a lot of time with Ovechkin. He's, he gets good power play time with the Capitals, of course. And now he's got a pretty good second line assignment with Anthony Mantha and TJ Oshie. So I don't, I don't think his assists are going anywhere. So I think he could actually produce almost at a wash compared to Shifley the rest of the season. And then I think McCarr is still a clear win over Gerard. So I, I lean to... McCarr and Nicholas Backstrom. So I'm going to do the starting lineup now. Unless even are there, are there any other questions that have trickled in the last second? Well, I just, want to get, I just want to give a quick shout out to Jared again, who actually just sent a screenshot. He's a uh, 12 and 0 in his fantasy league, and he's uh, but he's losing this week, so he's uh, he's looking for that. Another question for you, based off the screenshot, seeing the teams, what are your thoughts of just having every team in your league using just like a play on words of a hockey player's name? It's got to be really good. If it's lame, I don't know. I, I'm. I think you got to go deeper than that for for a for a team name. I think I, to me, it's got to be an absolutely elite, super clever. Not everyone's going to even get it type of team. Name. I, I used to like just picking like random obscure teams. Like a couple of times, I was like different teams in the Israeli like Division Two league. Uh, and then I've also been uh, the Dubai Mighty Camels, who actually just recently won the, the Dubai Championship. My buddy Fraser Matthews went to high school with him, played uh, house league hockey with him. He's in my fantasy league right now. He's the person that I traded Jack Eichel to. So shout out to the Dubai Mighty Camels. Big, uh, big win for that. Awesome. And uh, my team right now is called Stinky Cheese, which is named after my NHL 21 character. But anyways, that's it. The starting lineup's next. But I got to say, I always look for something to criticize you on in this. But I, I don't know if I actually could even come up with a list of five different movies other than home alone two is better than home alone one that's it oh, no way it's funny because yeah home alone is on my list so my starting lineup is it's funniest movies and when i say funniest i'm not saying objectively the greatest i'm just saying the movies that made me laugh the most the first time i saw them so that's the category starting lineup we got six movies the funniest movies i've ever seen number one is home alone i think it's the movie maybe i've seen the most in my life it's so quotable as a kid, you like it for the slapstick. As a kid, you fast forward it. You can't, you can't wait till Lenny and Marv start trying to break in. As an adult, I actually like the first half so much more, and Uncle Frank and all the great lines from the kids. So you find different ways to enjoy it. Now that I have a little kid who likes to watch it as well, she's into it. So I love Home Alone. That's number one. Number two, Anchorman. Just one of the, the silliest, most quotable comedies of all time. It's so memeable. I was Ron Burgundy once for Halloween. It was a lot of fun. I actually did the entire Channel 4 news team with some friends. 21 Jump Street. I think that's the most underrated movie of the past 10 years or so. I think it's hilarious. And I think they really explored some interesting themes, inverting, you know, who was cool, who was the nerd. They go back to school years later and, you know, what's politically correct and what, what isn't has changed. So they completely reverse roles where the former nerd is now the cool guy. 
Um, this one's not even a comedy. Wolf of Wall Street, I think, is a hilarious movie, especially Jonah Hill's performance, but just the absolute insanity of that movie. It's just, it's kind of vintage Martin Scorsese. I don't know if he's made a movie that energetic since Goodfellas. And it's such an underrated comedy movie. I think that's the weirdest thing about Wolf of Wall Street. It's hilarious. Rob Reiner, really funny in that movie, too. Number five, I've got The 40-Year-Old Virgin. This movie has not aged perfectly in terms of some of the politics and some of the language that's used in it. So I'm not saying I feel that way about it right now, but just when I first saw it in the moment, it was it, it was sort of the introduction to the Apatow world of R-rated comedy. It was a game changer, and I love that movie. And number six, I have Bridesmaids. I, I recently rewatched it. It's so funny. There are so many really hilarious set pieces like there's so many big moments that you're excited to watch, whether it's the really awkward competing toasts, whether it's them on the plane, whether it's the barf scene when they're trying on the bridesmaid dresses. There's so many just awesome scenes in that movie that are super memorable. And it made Melissa McCarthy a breakout star. So that is the starting lineup, funniest movies. I still want more suggestions for categories. They can be super weird. I don't care what they are. I just want more categories. So go ahead and send some to me. We'll do them next time. We'll be back. We're getting close to the nitty gritty, the end of the season. So we're going to, be probably talking about things that help you in your playoff matchups in the next episode of the fantasy hockey podcast, but I will be here to help. Hopefully I'm still alive in my playoffs too. Thank you for watching and thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the hockey news fantasy podcast with Matt Larkin. Make sure to send questions into Matt at THN Matt Larkin on Twitter and visit THN.com slash subscribe to have issues of the hockey news magazine delivered right to your mailbox.